I'm Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to Cape Up. One of the nightmare scenarios for Susan Rice when she was national security advisor to President Obama was the possibility of a global pandemic. They planned for it. They did a tabletop exercise with the incoming Trump administration that included pandemic preparedness. They even left a playbook. We left behind a 69-page playbook, uh, which you know was sort of pandemic for dummies. If you don't know where to start, start here and ask these questions and do these things. And apparently, uh, if they weren't thrown into garbage bins, they sat on the shelves and collected dust. Today, Susan Rice's nightmare is our lived reality, and she believes President Trump, from his rhetoric to his actions, is not helping matters. The President of the United States almost says boastfully that we will have done a very good job if he can contain deaths to between 100,000 and 240,000 Americans. In what circle of hell, Jonathan, is that a good outcome? Rice has more to say right now. Susan Rice, thank you very much for coming back to the podcast. It's good to be with you, Jonathan. It's been a little while. It's been a little a little while. You were the National Security Advisor to President Obama last we spoke. And I, let's just jump right on in this. On March 13th, you wrote an op-ed for the New York Times with the headline, The Government Has Failed on Coronavirus, But There Is Still Time. That was about two weeks ago. Do we still have time? No. <laughs> uh, we are facing a situation where, remarkably, the president of the United States almost says boastfully that we will have done a very good job if he can contain deaths to between 100,000 and 240,000 Americans. That's an outrage. And he brags that, you know, well, if we hadn't done anything, maybe 2.2 million would have died. And so, you know, up to 240,000 is a good outcome. There's the, there, in what circle of hell, Jonathan, is that a good outcome? And the fact is that, as I wrote in the op-ed piece, it really didn't need to be this bad. Mm-hmm. And I think, quite frankly, uh, you know, the president and many on his team bear significant responsibility for the loss of life and the economic consequences of this pandemic being much greater than they needed to be. As I explained at the outset, you know, we, when I last spoke to you at the very end of the Obama administration, I think it was really like the last week, if I remember, in my office, that was the moment at which we were doing, uh, during that transition period, the last stages of our handoff to the incoming administration. I had met myself with my uh, successor, uh, Michael Flynn, General Michael Flynn, uh, for on four occasions over 12 hours. I handed off over 100 briefing papers to him and shared with him the issues that I thought were uh, most salient and most important for him to grasp, among them the risk that we would face another pandemic. The reality is, Jonathan, anybody who knows national security, anybody who knows global health, knows developing development issues understood that we were not only inevitably going to face another global pandemic, but in fact that the world was overdue. When you look at the span of history, we had 1918, I'm just going to go back a century, I'm not going back forever. 
1918, we had 1957, we had 1968, we had 2009 with the swine flu pandemic, uh, and we had uh, in during the Bush years, even before that, uh, the, the potential for a very deadly avian flu pandemic. None of those reached the proportions uh, of 1918. And so it was a matter of time only before something of this sort happened. During the Obama administration, we worked through the swine flu uh, pandemic of 2009. You know, President Trump had the audacity to blame President Obama for the deaths in that circumstance, which after all was said and done and we had two waves, was 12,500 Americans. That's obviously a lot. It's going to pale in comparison to what we're going to experience now sadly, with coronavirus. And recognizing, because we had dealt with uh, the swine flu pandemic, and then Ebola, and then Zika, that pandemic preparedness needed to be a top national security priority. I established, uh, when I was national security advisor, an office in the National Security Council that reported to me and to Lisa Monaco, the Homeland Security Advisor, and through us to the president an office on global health security and biodefense. And we put a senior expert in charge of that office. And that office had the sole responsibility of scanning the globe for potential outbreaks, monitoring them, bringing them to the attention of higher ups and making sure that we were prepared to deal with them. In 2018, John Bolton and, and Donald Trump dismantled that office uh, and scattered the individuals, fired the senior person, Admiral Zemer, who is a very qualified expert who was running that office. Uh, and now they're lying and claiming they didn't dismantle it. They did. And that set us back. During the transition, not only did I brief General Flynn myself, but we ran a exercise with the entire incoming Trump administration cabinet and the outgoing Obama administration cabinet. And that exercise over several hours included a particular scenario on pandemic preparedness. It turns out to be very similar to, in fact, what's actually transpired in order to get their muscles engaged on this very unique and, and complex challenge. We left behind a 69-page playbook, uh, which you know was sort of pandemic for dummies. If you don't know where to start, start here and ask these questions and do these things. And apparently... Uh, if they weren't thrown into garbage bins, they sat on the shelves and collected dust. So this administration was not interested in pandemics. It was not prepared for pandemics. And we now know that even during the Trump administration, there were lots of reports, lots of warnings. Uh, certainly the intelligence community has been warning about this for years, publicly and privately, uh, and did so again in January. But the Council of Economic Advisors and HHS, all these other entities ran scenarios that should have been uh, of value and use to the Trump administration. But rather than act promptly, when in early January, they learned from both the World Health Organization, which was notified at the end of December, and from the Chinese government that there was an unusual and dangerous outbreak underway in Wuhan area, uh, rather than moving immediately from very early January to do the things that they that we know we have to do, get in place the testing capacity, uh, scale it up so that it's widely available, you know, surge the purchase and the distribution of personal protective equipment, ventilators, 
uh, masks, gloves, gowns, uh, and get that to our hospital systems, build out our bed capacity, call back medical professionals, all these things that states and locals are now doing on the fly. These are the things that we know we needed to do and do at the outset. And so they didn't do that. They waited two months. It's not the one month that the New York Times had a headline, a wasted month. It was a wasted two months, Jonathan. And those two months have meant the difference between many tens of thousands of Americans dying who, who might otherwise not have died. You know, through this whole situation, I've been, I can only imagine how you feel, given that you walked us through all of these things. You were part of the planning, uh, part of the infrastructure to ensure that if this situation happened, the nation would be prepared. As a citizen, not part of that, I'm sitting back and thinking, where is the federal government? Where it where is the leadership? Is it um, is it that it it really does leadership in this instance? The lack of leadership really does come directly from the top. Is it that to your mind, President Trump just doesn't care, or because these the the playbook and all the plans came from President Obama's administration that he's just willing to. I put American lives at risk in order to own the Obama administration. You know, I I don't want to speculate on his motives. I mean, I, we all have our personal opinions. I think the important thing is that he has demonstrated utter lack of leadership, utter incompetence. And he's been profoundly dishonest about the nature of the threat to the American people by downplaying it, by dismissing it, by, you know, you know, comparing it to the flu and having his senior officials do the same and having Fox News do the same. He has misled the American people uh, to such an extent uh, that, that lives have been lost in the process. Uh, there are many parts of this country where people still don't think this is a big deal. And that's why it wasn't until yesterday that the governors of Florida and Georgia and Texas, you know, actually put in place uh, statewide stay-at-home uh, orders. That's ridiculous. So here we are now with a president who has failed and has demonstrated dishonesty and incompetence. Uh, and whether that's because he didn't care or he was trying to, you know, downplay the the problem and buoy his uh, electoral prospects mistakenly, or whether it was to buck up the markets or because he doesn't care, I don't know what it was. I just know that he has cost tens of thousands of American lives. Uh, and here we are in the moment, and they still don't have their act together. The, the reality is, you know, as I wrote two weeks ago, it's not too late. Well, we've wasted that time, too, to a large extent. While testing has ramped up, it's still far, far, far from where it needs to be. There's still people all over this country who are unable to be tested who need to be tested. Uh, we have still not fully invoked, the president has not fully invoked the Defense Production Act. The importance of that is not only to order GM, which is the only thing he's done, to produce ventilators, it's to order all of the potential capacity in the country to prioritize the production of ventilators, but also masks and gowns and gloves and all these things in short supply. And then using the authority of the Defense Production Act, what the president and the administration ought to be doing is prioritizing the, the purchasing and distribution 
of that equipment. Because right now, basically what the president said is 50 states, 50 governors, compete against yourselves, go for it. Uh, it's like, a, you know, it's a free-for-all. And the, pre the president of the United States and the federal government could be coordinating and organizing the purchase of that equipment and making sure those places with the greatest need are getting it when they need it. And instead, they're not doing any of that. I mean, and, and it's outrageous. Every day we hear a new crazy story. Okay, so the, the uh, national stockpile is almost de uh, depleted. And, you know, and what are we doing about it? Meanwhile, 280,000, excuse me, 280 million masks have been allowed to be purchased by foreigners. We are exporting masks at a time when we need them here desperately. And, and that's just, it's like Keystone Cops every day. Wait, um, is, is it key? I know you don't want to get in the heads and question motives, but is it Keystone Cops or from, from your experience, is it deliberate? Because for me as a, as a citizen, it feels deliberate. Well, I mean, I, you know, even I am not prepared to say that and, and maybe I maybe I should, but I, I, I it's just inconceivable to me to have to state the, the a proposition that the president of the United States is willfully trying to kill Americans. I don't want to say that. I don't want to believe that. Uh, but I do think he's playing politics. And when you know when states like Massachusetts and Illinois uh, and can't get and Michigan uh, can't get the kinds of equipment that they need. And meanwhile, places like Kentucky and Oklahoma are getting more than they need. Uh, you have to wonder what that's about. Uh, you know, when the president says, you know, DeSantis, the governor of Florida, has been doing a great job when, you know, he basically allowed spring break to persist and wouldn't, you know, shut down the bars and the beaches uh, and, you know, came kicking and screaming to a nationwide, to a, a statewide um, lockdown order only yesterday, you've got to wonder what's going on. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, Jonathan, in addition to all the things I've already said, invoking the Defense Production Act, you know, getting the testing out there and getting it to scale, the president also ought to have ordered already a nationwide stay at home. You know, we cannot do this piecemeal. We already have the evidence not only in parts of the United States like California, but in other parts of the world that when you do these shutdowns early and comprehensively, it makes a difference. It saves lives and it flattens the curve. And the fact that, you know, for whatever reason, the president has refused to do that and has uh, essentially, you know, created this, uh, you know, chaotic competition between and among states and jurisdictions and not made any sustained effort to lead is truly uh, a dereliction of duty. Um, two people who the American people have gotten to know, if they didn't know them already, um, are uh, Dr. Burks, Dr. Deborah Burks, and Dr. Uh, Tony Fauci. And they have been in public service for a long time, uh, I'm, I'm sure you know them, you have worked with them. How much confidence does it give you um, that they are there and are a part of what's going on now? Well, Jonathan, I, I know Dr. Fauci quite well. I don't know uh, Ambassador Burks as well. And I have to say, 
I've been deeply, as always, deeply impressed by uh, Tony Fauci, his expertise, his knowledge. I've worked very closely with him on a number of crises. I know him to be an extraordinary professional, uh, apolitical, committed to uh, the mission of global public health. Um, and, it, you know, his his involvement, his presence comforts me enormously. I trust him and I trust his integrity and I trust his knowledge and experience and as have presidents going back to Ronald Reagan. Uh, and so um, it's imperative that he be allowed to, to do his job unfettered, provide unvarnished advice uh, and speak clearly to the American people. Um, I, again, I don't I don't have the same degree of, of experience with Deborah Burks. Um, and I, I have to say that just, you know, from observing her presentations in public, I find them to be less transparent and less um, uh, less in instilling of confidence uh, than um, Dr. Fauci's. Um, is it from your perspective that there are too many people around the president right now telling him things that he wants to hear as opposed to pushing for things he needs to hear in order to guide the situation? You know, Jonathan, it's very difficult for me on the outside to be able to speculate or, or speak sure. in an informed way about that. So I, I hesitate to do that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think generally we have seen the president who uh, is very um, dismissive of, of information and news he doesn't want to hear. Uh, his public reputation is one for, you know, explosive anger at people who bring him bad news. Uh, but I have not, you know, I'm not on the inside. I don't know what the dynamics are. I do want to say that I, it, it appears that uh, when push has come to shove, that if not perfectly, then substantially, the advice of people like Dr. Fauci is bearing some uh, some weight. Do you worry that Dr. Fauci might go too far in the eyes of the president and the, and the president will do what he has done to other people, uh, and that is to fire him? Yeah, I think the president would do himself, which may be the most important metric in his mind, mm -hmm. extraordinary damage by firing Dr. Fauci. So I want to believe that that's not in the cards and that both the president and the American people will continue to benefit from Dr. Fauci's extraordinary knowledge and expertise. Um, if you were, and I know you're not in there, you're not privy to everything, but if, say, your, your successor, um, um, Mr. O'Brien, the National Security Advisor, were to go, well, actually, have you heard from anyone within the Trump administration asking your advice? On this or in general? On this and in general. In general, yes. And I... I I hold those conversations in confidence uh, because I think it's important for um, officials from one administration to be able to, to talk to their predecessors without that being public. Under, understood. Uh, and on on this, on the coronavirus? Not on this. Not on this. If someone were to call you ab about this, What's the number one thing you would advise the administration to do right now? Well, as I said, nationwide lockdown, 
that, that go beyond, uh, you know, the, the 15 days, now 30 more days, um, making it very clear that everybody everywhere ought to stay at home. And then the full invocation of the powers of the Defense Production Act uh, and getting ahead uh, of the, the purchase, procurement, and distribution of these critically needed supplies so that the states are no longer having to bid against each other and bid against the federal government in order to obtain these uh, vital supplies that are in, in, in such short quantity. Th those are two critical things uh, that, that I think uh, we need to ha already have done and certainly to do today because every day absolutely counts. Getting the ventilators, getting all this production online, hugely important uh, as well. Getting healthcare workers um, and prioritizing testing for them uh, so that um, so that they they can remain on the front lines and, and function along with our first responders. Uh, you know, the, the testing has been the original sin and the catastrophic failure. And despite the president saying the other day that he hasn't heard for a while that it's still a problem, which is, I'm sure, not true. And if it is true, it's shocking. Uh, you know, we have a huge, huge problem with testing, and that problem has not been solved. And the happy talk around it, suggesting it's been solved, is, is not helpful. Um, anyone listening to this to this interview or the interview that I did with you three and a half year, three and a half years ago knows that you are um, forthright, blunt talking. Um, you never you are never unclear about where this <laughs> right stands on things. And I bring this up because you you are the author of the book. Tough love, my story of the things worth fighting for, and it is a it is a tough book because you are tough on yourself, you are tough on your parents, you are tough on your kids, you are tough on everybody, and in a lot of ways, it reminds tough me, love, Jonathan, it's love, it's with love and with, with place of love, and because they have given me so much, right? And when you're writing about your father, you, you write, Dad was opinionated and could be argumentative and quick-tempered. He was competitive, occasionally self-righteous, and utterly incapable of suffering fools. And, you know, I, when I read, I underline and take notes, and I wrote, and I wrote, like her dad. <laughs> well, I say that. I, I say in the book that, you know, I, I had extraordinary parents, Jonathan. They were just uh, unbelievably um, devoted capable, caring parents who gave me and my brother so much. They were also each very accomplished professionals. Um, and in many ways, the book is an ode to, to all they gave me and taught me uh, that enabled me to become uh, the, the, the person I've become. And yet, you know, I'm honest about my failings and honest about theirs. And, you know, all those things I said about my dad, you know, are true, were true. Uh, and they're true to a large extent about me. And I, I, you know, I inherited some of their best qualities and some of their, their worst qualities. But my dad was also, you know, incredibly funny and charming and brilliant. And, you know, a, a, you know the person you would want to spend a Saturday night with. Um, you know, he had all kinds of, uh, of great characteristics. And those that made him impatient and unwilling to suffer fools also you know, made him effective and, 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 
you know, I, you know, I admire both my mother and father just so greatly. So another lesson that you learned from them, particularly your father, was to not let race become a crutch or a cudgel. To uh, you write um, that your dad taught you, you don't have to prove anything to anyone but yourself. Never doubt that you are more than good enough. And then you you wrote something, and I'm gonna I'm gonna read it because it, another thing I underlined because it's so true. You wrote my own refusal to allow what I look like to be my problem, one which gets into my head is fundamental to the mindset that has helped me succeed. Equally, I internalized dad's message that I should never doubt my own abilities. This combination, being a confident black woman who is not seeking permission or affirmation from others, I now suspect accounts for why I inadvertently intimidate some people, especially certain men, and perhaps also why I have long inspired motivated detractors who simply can't deal with me. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) What else can I say? Well, I mean, but it is it 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 is a strong factor. I mean, anyone who knows you, anyone who has seen you on television, listened to you, picks up whether they know you or not. Picks up this. I don't care what you think of me. Vibe. People get this. You are you are grounded. You are you are assured. And you know the one the bright light is you know you have this impact on people. How do you? How do you advise other people of color, black people, women, particularly black women, how to deal with this world, the professional world that they're in? And of course, I'm thinking of my colleague over at PBS, Yamishal Sindor, who catches hell every time, you know, there's a presidential briefing. Well, Yamish is a hero. Uh, she she is... Uh, um, She's extraordinary. And what she does and what I've tried to do and what I would advise other people to do is to recognize that there there are always going to be those who, because of their own insecurity, want to make you as a woman or as an African-American or other kind of minority doubt yourself and limit yourself and check yourself uh, and, you know, believe bigoted renditions of who you are and what you're capable of doing. And what I learned from my parents, which was so valuable and extraordinary, was you know, my dad was born in segregated South Carolina. Uh, he grew up under Jim Crow. He fought uh, in World War II. He served in World War II with the Tuskegee Airmen in a segregated military. And he went on to rise to become a governor of the Federal Reserve and, you know, in between faced a huge amount of bigotry and prejudice. And my mother was the daughter of immigrants who came from Jamaica to Portland, Maine in 1912. They had no education. And they my grandfather was a janitor and my grandmother was a seamstress and a maid. And they saved and sent all five of their kids to college and they all became accomplished professionals. And, you know, what my mother learned from her experience, just like my dad's, was, you know, you've got to tune out and and not let other people's definition of you, particularly bigoted definitions, become your own. You've got to believe in your own capacities and you got to push back and, and not 
as my dad often said, don't take crap off of anybody. Well, you mm-hmm. meet up there not taking crap off the leader of the free world. God bless her. Uh, that, that is a model <laughs> for everybody. And it shouldn't be that the leader of the free world is dishing crap against any individual reporter, and particularly not with uh, its seeming relish with women and women of color in particular. Uh, but be that as it may, she's still about the business of doing her job and doing it with professionalism and confidence and competence. And that's exactly, you know, she is the modern day model of you know, what I've tried to teach my kids and, and anybody else who will listen, that uh, you've got to believe in yourself and you can't be deterred. Uh, and um, she's, she's exhibiting that every day. And making me very proud and many, many others very proud. Relationship and how even as young as seven years old, you were playing the diplomat between the two. There's one vignette um, that you write about, about how the trust between your parents was gone. And you wrote, dad had hired a private investigator to spy on my mother. My mother clandestinely installed recording devices in our house to entrap my father that they you realize they really didn't like each other and maybe rarely had. And one of the notes I wrote in the margin, and this comes early in the book, it was as if I was reading, for those who remember Dynasty and the character Dominique Devereaux, it read as if this is what Dominique Devereaux's life would have been like if she had a spinoff from, <laughs> from Dynasty. And I'm glad, uh. I'm glad you're laughing at that. But I, as I read this, I was thinking, wow, you're really going there. Why was it important for you to, I mean, I know it's tough love and I know it's something to be honest when writing about your life, but someone, people wouldn't begrudge you, you know, if you had decided, "Eh, I'm just going to leave that part out. Well, Jonathan, you know, the reason I wrote the book Tough Love um, was to be able after having spent years in government, you know, where whenever I spoke in public, I was speaking on behalf of the United States or I was speaking on behalf of the president of the United States. While, you know, for years, uh, since, particularly since Benghazi, when I was pilloried following uh, my appearance on the Sunday shows for sharing the current best information we had at the time, which turned out to be partially inaccurate. Um, you know, I was characterized and caricatured on the right and the left uh, by, um, you know, people who found me to be a, a, a victim or a heroine or a villain or, you know, a liar. And none of these characterizations bore a resemblance to who I was, where I came from, and, and what motivated me. Yet I couldn't speak in my own voice and tell my own story. And I understood that. And I, you know, I took these jobs that went and was honored to serve. And that was part of the implicit bargain. So when I decided to write the book and to tell my own story in my own words, I thought it was very, it was essential to be honest. Uh, And I can't tell the story of who I am and where I came from without describing the most formative and and traumatic experiences of my childhood, which were, uh, you know, encompassed in my parents' very difficult marriage, ugly divorce, uh, and their custody battle, and how that influenced me basically from the age of six, seven to, to 15. 
Um, and, you know, if I were to leave that out or to sugarcoat it, um, I would be in effect perpetrating a fraud mm -hmm. uh, as to, to who I am and, and what that entailed. Now, you know, both my parents have passed. Uh, I think it would have been hard for, for me to write this book um, as um, forthrightly as I did, um, you know, if they were still with us. And yet I'm confident that in the span of the, the story, I mean, the, you would leave with an appreciation for what extraordinary people they were and how much they loved me and my brother and how much we loved them. Uh, so I think, you know, despite this very raw portion of the book where I tell, you know, the story of their terrible marriage, uh, you know, they come out of this, I hope and believe, uh, the heroes that they are. So it, last question. When it was, I think it was January 18th, 2017, um, you invited a group of, of journalists to your office there in the West Wing um, for a final interview. Um, and I think among the many questions was, you know, what's the number one issue? And I think you said at the time, North, North Korea. Um, and I'm bringing that up because you were national security advisor then. But you know what else I said, Jonathan? Because well, another reporter who was in that session reminded me that when I was asked about what worries me what most as threats that, or, that aren't on everybody's radar screen, I don't know if you remember what I said. No, I don't. I said pandemics. Mm. And I'd forgotten I said that until one of, the, one of your colleagues who was in the meeting uh, you know, about a month and a half ago when this was starting, she texted me and said, I remember you saying this. Uh, it stuck with me. And it's, you know, it has been, you know, one of my nightmare scenarios um, for many years. And I, as I wrote in the book, actually, which came out in the fall. And so now, and so now here we are. What was a nightmare scenario is now our lived experience. Now that we're living through it, what's the thing that that really does keep you up at night. Well, this is keeping me up at night as it's keeping all Americans up at night. And, you know, maybe because I, you know, I have some knowledge and experience working through these kinds of challenges, uh, although albeit not on this scale, um, you know, I have an appreciation for where this is going to go. I think maybe I have a more realistic sense of the, the, the length of time that this is going to consume us uh, and how disruptive it's going to be economically and, and in terms of loss of life. Um, but, you know, this is keeping me up at night because we have not uh, begun to, to, to hit the, the, the top of the curve here. And, um, our government continues to fail us every step of the way. It's not just their lack of preparedness, their disregard for the tools that we left them and that they themselves at, at, in the agencies and at lower levels developed that could have been helpful. Uh, it's not just the two months they squandered in, in January and February. Uh, it's not just the president's lies and, 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 and misrepresentations. It's that today, even when we know and the president stands up and says, you know, well, I'll have done a very good job if 100 to 240,000 Americans die. They are not doing the things that, that they know are necessary to keep it to that 
extraordinarily high number, which they claim is their goal. I mean, it's just, it blows my mind that that can be a goal. What kind of goal is that? And here we are. And yet, you know, we still don't have a national stay-at-home order. We still don't have the invocation and the appropriate use of the Defense Production Act to deal with all of the supplies that are critical and to keep the governors and the mayors from bidding against each other. You know, we, we still don't have testing where we need to have it. It's just an outrage. Former National Security Advisor to President Obama, Susan Rice, also author of Tough Love, My Story of the Things Worth Fighting For. Thank you very much for coming back to the podcast. It's good to be with you, Jonathan, even under these circumstances. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.